I think it's important for all citizens to care about the schools because those people are going to be on the street. They're going to be turning over your table when you're trying to have a meal at a restaurant. They're going to be blocking the road. They're going to be tearing down a statue of, you know, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Um, These people are out of control. They're violent and they're dangerous. Welcome to the Fallen State. I am Jesse Lee Peterson. Don't forget that the Fallen State is on Patreon. Click the Patreon link in the description to support our work. And in advance, thank you. A very interesting guest today. I have with me Dr. Mary Graybar. She is a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. She's also the author of Debunking Howard Zinn and Debunking the 1619 Project. I totally appreciate that. Dr. Graybar, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for inviting me. And I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, a lot of this um, Howard Zinn and all that, I've never heard of these people. I might be like a, a lot of the younger generation. They have not, they don't really understand what's being taught to them either. So thank you again for coming on. So your parents were born under communism, right? Correct. And so was I. And uh, where and how, how old were you when you left that area? I, I read that you were a young person. Yeah, I was only two years old when uh, my parents came here. Um, So I was born in Slovenia when it was still part of communist Yugoslavia. And my parents had to escape over the border and they stayed in a uh, refugee camp in Austria for nine months. And then my uncle, my father's older brother, sponsored us and they uh, brought us over. And I grew up in Rochester, New York. Amazing. And so as a young girl, young child like that, you were not personally affected by communism, right? Well, no. I mean, I remember going there for an extended visit when I was 12 years old with my family. But I grew up with the sense of communism being very bad because I heard my parents and relatives and their friends talking about what it was like. Yeah, I can imagine that. Do you remember some of the examples of what they said about it? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they uh, communists tell you how much food you can grow. So if you are a poor peasant farmer, as my relatives were, and when I went back in 1969, none of them had indoor plumbing or cars, things that I had taken for granted. Right. Um, So when you live under communist rule and, you know, you have a few acres to farm and to live on, uh, what they will do is they will send inspectors around. And as my aunt told me, they would come out to a field of wheat or something and they would find the luscious little patch and say, "Okay, you owe this percentage (laughs) of it. And then they would say, uh, each family can only raise one hog for slaughter. Wow. And, right? And if you don't have enough to eat, well, what, did, what do you think they did? 
they they were doing hog slaughtering in the middle of the night when the inspectors weren't around because you know they make a lot of noise and they can tell <laughs> so you you have you have to do all those kinds of things in order to survive i mean can you imagine a government telling you how much if you're a farmer how much food you can raise or not how much you can buy to feed your family i mean that's what it boils down to that's amazing and so you say you went over there, you went back to visit. I would think that if a country is a controlled country like that, communist country, wouldn't you be concerned that they would not let you out if you go for a visit? They well, wouldn't let you leave? Yeah, under Tito, um, Yugoslavia was, you know, not like us, you know, the other Eastern Bloc countries. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were a little more open. Um, he actually, um, you know try, you know, had ties to the West. Um, so it wasn't quite as bad as the other communist countries, but you had to get the visa and all that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they were tracking us and yeah. made sure we, they knew where we were. And when I was there, I remember my father trying to talk to uh, his brother-in-law and my uncle and ask about what things were like politically. And uh, my uncle was afraid to say it. And this was in his own house. He was like, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that. You know, I just, just don't ask me about it. That's amazing. And so was it always communist where your parents grew up or did they allow it to become that way? Well, it was during World War Two. It was one of the countries that, you know, fell under communism uh, you know, after World War Two, right. So, um, you know, there's a whole long story there. And, you know, and I think, uh, you know, Americans can take a lesson from it because, you know, I've read about it. And what they did is they set people against each other. They set brother against brother. You know, they had the communists, they were called the partisans, and they were coming into the villages and um, they they were using the divide and conquer strategy. And, you know, we could see that happening here in America. I'm thinking the same thing. And I want to get to that as we move forward. It's amazing to see in America how they are dividing the people and the people don't seem to see that that is happening. They're going right along with it. And I never thought that I would see that in America. But I want to get to that as we move forward here. And so did that cause you to say one day, I'm going to grow up, I'm going to go to school, and I'm going to fight against communism? Was that part of your thinking while growing up? Well, not really. I kind of took things for granted, you know, that I would have freedom of movement. I mean, who could have thought back in the 70s yeah. and 80s that we would be forced to wear masks and show our papers in certain cities before we had a meal and have, you know, vaccines forced on us. So I, I took that for granted. And, um, and I, after an absence from uh, college, I went back to graduate school and I earned a PhD in English. And that's when I really started seeing this suppression of free thought was yeah. in academia. And that's what made me a conservative was going to <laughs> graduate school. And so I could, no, go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. So I could see these um, Marxist ideas filtering in, even in, you know, as we were studying literature and, it, you know, it aroused my curiosity because I'd always thought, well, communism, that's the old country. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. We've, we left that. We are the land of the free and I can go wherever I want. I can do whatever I, uh, you know, want as long as I follow the law and I will be rewarded if I put in the work, um, it, you know, with a job or with a degree. Right. And, you know, being in the a graduate seminar, um, you know, saw, made me see how the Marxists were really seeping in through the culture, corrupting academia and corrupting education. And, and here we are, 2022, and it's just exploded. Yeah, it's amazing. Are your parents still living? No, no, they, they both passed away. Do you have family members in this country who are now still living, but, and they grew up in that environment, communism? Um, no, I have a slightly older cousin and he, but he was like six years old when. Yeah. And the reason I ask is because I wonder what they're thinking. They ran from a communist country and they see America becoming that, that way. Oh, you know, every day you see a glimpse of it. For you, what is that light seeing that coming and and there is nowhere else to go because once America become that way, it's it is done, right? What is it like for you seeing that happening? It, it's happen? very, yeah, it's very alarming to me. Like you know, as Lincoln said, and then Reagan quoted him, um, "We are the last best hope. Yeah. Where are people going to run to?" My parents, you know, went in the middle of the night, crossed the border. They ran across the border. My aunt and uncle escaped uh, literally across the border, you know, dropped their farm implements in the field and had nothing, absolutely nothing, and walked over the border to Austria. And there was a place to go to. And my relatives have always appreciated the freedoms and the opportunities that are offered here. Uh, They didn't have it easy. But if you if you were willing to work hard, um, you you could get ahead. And um, and it's alarming. I have a correspondent uh, who's Slovenian and he's he's you know, he's in academia and he sees what's going on. It's just um, it, it really is alarming to see such a big switch in my lifetime. Does it to you and your uncle, does it seem that we can t- going to turn it around in America and prevent this from happening? Or does it seem like it's going to happen no matter what? Well, I'm, I'm always hopeful. And yeah. <laughs> I always, uh, you know, I, I can't help myself. I try to do what I can. What I am, um, you know, grateful for uh, about is the fact that we're getting grassroots movements. Yeah. So back, you know, under the Obama administration, under Common Core, which is sort of where I saw this starting, I was speaking out, I was speaking to tea parties, and I was trying to encourage, you know, people who are retired or people had kids in schools, like, call your legislator, become active, um, you know, try to get people into office. Look, here, you know, I got this email on, you know, on the English department's list serve calling for a Marxist conference uh, <laughs> at a state school. This was in Georgia. I was living in Georgia and people were like, you know, yeah, that's disturbing, but you know, that's, that's in, you know, college, 
and uh, we're in the business world and we're going to advise our kids to take engineering or medicine or you know business right. and we're just going to avoid that well look at it now yeah right yeah. but we are getting we are you know i mean you know the election in virginia um you know i think i hope that's a good signal yeah uh, yeah i agree yeah how many years have you been in higher education? Well, I I went back to school in 92 part-time and um, took me almost 10 years to get my uh, PhD. And then I worked as an instructor, which was a semester to semester contract from about uh, 2003 to 2013 and I got canceled from a couple places you know they just said they had no classes for me the next semester and this was after I'd have a couple op-eds published and um, the last place I taught uh, was at Emory University but that was a program that had private funding so I wasn't really an employee of Emory but I was teaching there and that ran out Amazing. So when you enter into your field, were you surprised? What was your first impression of so many liberals being in that? (laughs) What was it for you? Well, I was fortunate because my first uh, semester, I had a professor who was the classic old style professor, Reiner Molinsky over at Georgia State. Um, And then the following semester, I encountered some of these left wingers and I was amazed because I, you know, I thought, you know, why do you study literature? Why do you go into this field? You know, you love literature. Right. Same thing if you were studying history, right? right. You want to learn about it. You want to teach about it. You want, you want to pass on the wisdom but I, um, I got th- these professors, and I soon learned to avoid them, um, who were just intent on knocking down Western civilization, all the great works that, you know, have been written um, by Shakespeare, Mark Twain, um, you know, to, th- th- their, their goal was deconstruction. And fortunately, uh, back in the 1990s, some of the old style professors, you know, were still teaching. I mean, they're all gone now. They, they're, they've retired or they've passed away. Yeah. Um, so I was able to do that. And I, I thought, you know, well, maybe there's a chance I can get a job someplace at a small college, you know, right? If I'm not, you know, stirring things up too much, I can <laughs> you know, teach. But, you know, they'll, they'll come get you. And I was canceled. So... <laughs> Amazing. I really admire you for speaking up, though. I've read some of the stuff you've gone through already, and we we need people to speak up. You can't afford to be quiet on these things. I read that when you during the Obama administration and you spoke at the Tea Party events that or rallies, whatever you call them, that the IRS went after you for a while there. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I decided um, I was still teaching and I decided to start a nonprofit because I was, um, you know, writing and I had a number of people following me and I thought I would start um, a nonprofit. 
And I followed all the rules. And this was during the Obama administration. So as you recall, you know, in order to keep the Tea Parties and the conservative groups quiet, uh, they stalled on the applications. Yeah. And I was, I, I was, you know, in that, I got caught up in that. It took two years. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you've ever tried to start a nonprofit. People had warned me, but it it's not an easy thing to do. The IRS packet, you know, the forms are, you know, yeah. About half inch thick, you, you know, I had to hire an accountant to fill them out. Um, they charged me $850 just to file it. And then it, then I hit a brick wall. And, um, you know, something that should have taken three months took two years. That's amazing. And yeah, yeah. They, they did that to a lot of people. I remember that. Yeah. And, and what they do, though, is, you know, when the government does that, there's very little recourse at the time. Yeah. I mean, I was part of a class action lawsuit and I got a very small you know, settlement. It was something, but it will never make up for the time lost when you've got the momentum going. And you're trying to get donations. And um, so it's, it's a very it's a feeling of helplessness yeah. because. You know, you can hire an attorney, um, but you don't know what's going on. I mean, yeah. you're, I don't know if you've ever tried to call the IRS. Oh, yeah. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's ever, like, <laughs> go, go ahead. No, it's like you sit down and you gird yourself. You know, you say, <laughs> I'm going to be here for an hour and, and yeah. maybe it'll get someone, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you ever feel like giving up? Um, I can't give up. I, I've just, I, there's something that, that, you know, I tells me that I need to keep fighting. Yeah. And, um, there's so many, there's so many good people out there. Um, I'm going to be at a rally, at, uh, in, uh, Charleston next month, moms for Liberty. I'm going to speak to one of their chapters in Baltimore before that. Nice. And uh, people people are concerned, and this is really about the future of the country because what they're doing in schools um, is they're abusing kids. What I, you know, the crazy stuff I had to read in graduate school, they're now teaching to second graders, and it's just toxic. It's it's terrible, and uh, can't sit still. Let that happen. Yeah, I wanted to ask you this: when I was growing up, teachers were real teachers. And they taught mm -hmm. reading, writing, and arithmetic, and they respected the parents of the children and the and the uh, children. And I remember if we were to act up in in class or anything, they would even let our parents know about that. And mm -hmm. what changed the teachers? Because I can't understand if a teacher is a real teacher, they love history, they love teaching the history of reading and writing and arithmetic. What changed the teacher to start? deceiving the children in this way when the parents are not paying attention? Well, I, I think, um, you know, there are a couple of things, you know, the uh, unions uh, are a corrupting force and also the education schools like all of academia became radicalized. So uh, the education that these teachers got was this left-wing Marxist education. Oh. 
And, um, you know, one of the most popular books that's being used in education schools and colleges of education is Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Yeah. So that's what the teachers learn. And then they pass it on to the kids. That's amazing. I want to get to that. But first, I want to talk about your organization. You are the executive direction of Dissident Pro. Dot com prop yes. dot com, mm-hmm. which stands for dissident professors, right? Correct. Um, can you tell us about that real fast here? Yeah, well, what I do is um, I post um, about things that are going on in education. Um, you know, uh, my goal with it was uh, to use it as a forum or a means by which to educate the public about what's going on in education, uh, let people know about what I am seeing in higher education, right. things people don't know about because they would be surprised. I mean, it, it was just, I mean, some people wouldn't believe me when I told them the strange things I would yeah. see. When I, I know some of the things <laughs> I've heard I couldn't believe. I'm like, what the... Yeah. Amazing. And so tell the folks how to get your organization again so they clearly hear the words, the proper name. Yeah, so um, you can subscribe to my email list. I send out a newsletter, and um, the website is dissidentprof.com. I also have another website, marygraybar.com, G-R-A-B-A-R. Com, and I post all my articles there and there are links to buy my books and so forth. But I do have a newsletter at dissidentprof.com. So um, you can just sign up. I, I don't share the list. I just send people updates on, you know, what I'm doing, uh, you know, blog posts, things I get published and so forth. Well, I really want to encourage people to sign up because this is so important. And a lot of people are just not aware how serious this is and how it's being covered up and it's happening even with the parents who are against it. And thank God the parents in Virginia and other places are starting to speak out about it. My producer was telling me, and she is a millennial, right? And she was telling me when she was in high school, they had to read Howard Zinn book. And um, I had never heard of Howard Zinn. And so, um, you wrote a book called Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. Explain to folks who was Howard Zinn and why was he so significant? Yeah, well, um, that's interesting that, that your um, producer read, had to read that. I, I, my uh, condolences. <laughs> Thank God she held on to her sanity, though. <laughs> yeah, she she's working get... for you, right? Yes, that's right. Her parents were pretty conservative, too, so that helped yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. well, Howard Zinn lures in a lot of um, young people, even, you know, my friends um, who are very conservative Christians, uh you know, their kids, their millennials right. have um, been, uh, you know, sort of seduced by Howard Zinn. But Howard Zinn died in 2010. He was born in 1922. And he grew up in Brooklyn. Um, his parents were Russian Jewish immigrants. He grew up fairly lower class. But when he was growing up, it was the 1930s. And that was the heyday of communist recruitment. 
and he's he got lured in um, as a teenager. And, uh, you know, in his autobiography, he talks about how he saw that the system was not a fair system. The American system was not fair um, and it was not just. And um, so he started believing in the tenets of Marxism. He actually was a member of the Communist Party from about 1948 to 1953. Um, his FBI file that's uh, close to 500 pages long shows that. Now, I'm relying mostly on an analysis by, uh, by someone who had been in the Communist Party very briefly. Yeah. So, um, you know, and he said, well, you know, this, this has all the hallmarks, uh, you know, even though Howard Zinn uh, denied it, you know, his entire life, he had been a member, but he dropped his membership um, in order to go teach at Spelman College in Atlanta, right. a, a small Christian school for Black women. And there he set about to radicalizing all of them. One of his students was Alice Walker. Oh, named. yeah, I know who that is, who that was. <laughs> yeah. What a cast. mess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he went there. He was fired, Um by the college president um, for insubordination because he was setting the students against the administration. Wow. Uh, he was not, you know, ostensibly he was taking them on civil rights protests, but he was doing much more than that. He was getting them thrown in jail. Uh, he was encouraging them not to go to chapel or, or follow the dress code or stick to curfew. And so he was fired but he soon landed on his feet and spent the rest of his career uh, teaching at Boston University, where he then radicalized those students and led protests against the Vietnam War, actually went to Hanoi, um, colluded with uh, the communist regime there to bring back our POWs, and just spent a lifetime um, uh, you know, corrupting students, radicalizing them, writing these books that and articles that are, you know, full of lies, and they remain yeah. with us. Howard Zinn's book is still being published. It's still a bestseller. This is the book is called A People History of the United States. Yeah, it's 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 sold over three million copies. The, the parents are not aware of this book. That's why they're able to get away with it. Well, yeah, a lot of parents don't know, but think about this. It's been out for 42 years. So a lot of the parents have been educated with Howard Zinn's book. They think it's the truth. A lot of them have not been exposed to anything else. And that's why I wrote my book, because I, I went through it and I said, you know, and I showed this is not simply a left wing version of American history, but it's a. Uh, it's illegitimate. Uh, Howard Zinn leaves out uh, parts of quotations. Um, he's very deceptive. So if an author says A, Howard Zinn makes it out to be B because <laughs> he leaves out those critical words. Um, you know, he, he misrepresents people. Um, he lies. He just presents misinformation 
uh, and presents this rosy picture off in the distance of a socialist regime and uh, actually encourages encourages violence and you know violent protest and, and overthrow of the government. Two quick things I want to ask you about concerning that. When I was growing up, black people, and this was before the so-called civil rights movement, black people were not so easily seduced into communism and hated white folks and blaming others. And I grew up on a plantation in Alabama, and they did have the Jim Crow law, but we knew it was the Democratic Party not wanting black people, and that Mm -hmm. all white people did not agree with that. Can you tell me, and so they were not easily seduced. What happened to the blacks? And it sounded like they were educated and all that, but what happened? How did these people know that they can seduce black people into socialism or communism? How did they know that? What was it about the blacks that allowed them to know that? Well, you know, the Communist Party, since it established, um, you know, its first office in New York in 1919, has been targeting um Black people, and it has uh, been working on starting a civil war between blacks and whites. Um, and you are correct because the surveys showed, uh, even though Howard Zim lies about them, that um, you know black people were always suspicious of communists yeah. and of radical left wingers because they knew from like the Scottsboro case that you know the, the the case where the nine young black men were charged with with raping two white women in 1931 the communists wanted to keep those guys in jail they would have been happy if they died in jail because they were raising money but you have people like Howard Zinn who in the 60s um you know probably uh, by orders of, uh, you know, the directors of the Communist Party went into the classroom. And they don't present this as, okay, now we're going to like (laughs) be like Stalin. It's going to be, oh, we're going to have social justice. Um, You know, the, the communists want to end Jim Crow laws. They've always lied about that. You, the what the communists did, and I, I've got another book that I've been working on a on a, uh, on a conservative um, black journalist by the name of George Schuyler. He could see this, and he tried to warn the community. Uh, he was writing for the Pittsburgh Courier. Um, don't these people, the communists, are not out for your well-being. They want to see strife. They want to see violence. They, they wanted them as sort of the shock troops for um, the Marxist revolution. And that's what Howard Zinn wanted as well. And Howard Zinn, you know, if you read a people's history, you would think from just reading that, um, that, you know, black people were behind, you know, the Marxists and the socialists, yeah. and they were not. It's just a lie. Right. And that's what they do. They they lie about it. And, um, you know, Howard Zinn, personally, he was a very charming person. Um, the young women at Spelman College were captivated by him. He was tall and good looking. Um, actually, one, one of the um, 
things that Albert Manley, the college president who fired him, held over his head was a morals charge of, of, against Howard's Inn with one of the students from Spelman College. So um, in, the, in the late 50s and the 60s, there was this um, campaign to go into the Black colleges and to spread Marxism. Amazing. So there were, there were student or white student organizers who went to Howard University. Um, Howard Zinn went to Spelman College. And, you know, one by one, they just started changing things. That's amazing. When I was younger, I heard that the um, communism had infiltrated the so-called civil rights movement and that they had become a part of that. And I didn't believe it at first, but now that I'm older and I'm learning more and more how they operate, I believe that now that that was possible. And also, uh, I was I saw a documentary once about how some of the unions got started. And, and what they did was during the civil rights movement, according to the documentary, they looked for the angry people, the people who were complaining they had problems, you know, about the system mm-hmm. and all that. And a lot of black people at that time and still are were angry and complaining. And so the unions recruited them because they was complainers. And that's how at least some of the unions got started by bringing in the angry people. You find that to be true? Yeah, I mean, for the research I, I've done uh, for, on the Howard Zinn book and uh, my George Schuyler biography, I mean, George Schuyler, I mean, he wrote this column about the Watts riots. He blamed the white socialist beatniks. He remember that term, beatniks? <laughs> yeah. That's from the 1950s. <laughs> um, you, know, you know who was behind the Newark riots? Who's that? Tom Hayden. And who was Tom Hayden? Um, he was a member of the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society. He was a leader, this 1960s radical group, uh, mostly made up of, you know, white college kids. Uh, Tom Hayden went down into Newark and he started stirring up trouble. Um, amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's this whole history that has been suppressed and of course, the historians that are now writing the books, you know, um, they've been taught by these people. Yeah. And so there's this worshipfulness of, of the communists and they wanted the rioting. They wanted violence. They, they didn't care about civil rights. They cared about overthrowing the government. You know, civil rights was ju- just a pretense. Yeah. Um, you know, you want to change the system and Howard's in said this, you know, he, he, uh, you know, talked about, you know, um, using uh, the, you know, equal access under the Civil Rights Act. He he saw that as a great thing, not because, you know, everyone uh, was able to go where they wanted to, to a restaurant or a hotel as they should, but because it would redefine private property. He didn't like the idea of private property. Mm yeah yeah it really is it's it's, it's, it's so amazing let me ask um have you are you aware or not are you aware if uh martin luther king jr and the so-called civil rights leaders did they know that this so-called movement was infiltrated by communism and did they support that idea well 
Yeah, I mean, that's a very tricky subject. Uh, the Stanley Levison, I don't know if you've heard that name. He, I may have, I don't remember. Yeah, he was, he was the guy who um, did, you know, financed what Martin Luther King Jr. was doing. And um, King was warned by the Kennedy administration and, uh, you know, and, he, and to cut ties with Stanley Levison and a few other people. Uh, King lied about that. He did not cut ties. Stanley Levison said he had been a member of the Communist Party, but would, no longer was. However, it's now come out. I think David Garrow has written about this. Uh, he's a historian um, that Levison remained in the Communist Party. Right. So there were there were these people around King who were manipulating him, and um, you know, unfortunately, he he got caught up in that and uh, these were not good people who were around him and Stanley Levison certainly was not um, his, his main goal was not equal rights. It was something much bigger. It was anti-American. And I think, um, you know, the movement went off the tracks. And of course, after uh, the 1963 March on Washington, if you know, if you remember, King started becoming more radical. Yeah, um, he started speaking out against the Vietnam War. Right, and you know, on the side of the North Vietnamese, right? I mean, just sounding very much like a communist. And his last effort was organizing the janitors. Was it in Memphis? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but that was that was really not a civil rights you know activity yeah. you know to me civil rights is you have equal opportunity you know uh, you adhere to what he said in that speech which is a favorite you know that uh, you're judged by the content of your character I think he was joking about that too <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I you know I mean that that. You know, there, there, you know, there's, there's um, so much out there. I mean, Cornell West. He is you know, a he, mess. But, but he likes King. He likes the radical King. And yeah. he wrote a book about that. And as you may know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project, in her talk at, um, at this club in Chicago, you know, just amazed everyone because she started <laughs> quoting King's speeches, um, but, you know, of course, the media pretends that she has discovered something new, which is not the case. No, I mean. it's not. We want, <laughs> I want to get to that. And time is moving. So let me ask. I have so many things I wanted to know from you. Um, I, I grew up, you know, when I moved away from Alabama. Oh, let me tell you this. When I was when the whole civil rights movement started, I was younger, of course. And I remember the older black people were not for it. They didn't agree with King. And they yeah. and they were called names and Uncle Toms and things like that. But the older black people were speaking out against the movement, so-called movement, because I guess they could understand what was going on and that mm -hmm. it wasn't really what they said that it was. But those people were criticized and 
Uncle Tom's and, and those people were not that educated either. You know, they worked the farms and they knew what was going on. So I really re realized now that they were being attacked for telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, there was a survey that was done, um, you know, in the mid-60s that showed 51% of Black people opposed King. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that he was doing was he was taking, he was getting recruiting little children into these protests. Wow. Now, right? thinking that King, uh, King went up to the mountaintop and he looked over and he saw communism in America. <laughs> He didn't see the glory of the coming of the Lord. He saw communism. But what I want to ask you is that um, I'm surprised how many Jewish people are so liberal. And I'm surprised that they are like a part of a communist movement. Because what I've heard about them and read about them, they went through hell. Supposedly, not supposedly, but they were like put on trains and they were murdered and killed and raped. They were taken away from their families and if they have gone through all those types of pain, why would they want to be anywhere near liberalism or socialism or communism? Why would any Jew, Jewish person promote that? I don't know. Um, my Jewish friends wonder about the same thing. Yeah. They're, they're, they're conservative. Um, they, you know, some of them, uh, a couple of them have, uh, you know, after uh, Donald Trump was elected, have sort of um, fallen off the wagon, but um, it it doesn't make sense. No, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it, it's sort of like someone coming from a communist country and then saying, "Oh, well, let's have it here." You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's mind blowing to me. I would love to understand why what is going on in their minds that they will support communism, socialism in a free country. It just doesn't make sense. But I got to ask you about Howard Zinn. You debunk Howard Zinn's scriptures about Christopher Columbus. Uh, what was his opinion of Christopher Columbus? Well, he, he lied about Christopher Columbus. Um, and the reason was because, you know, Christopher Columbus discovered America. Yeah. And he truly was a great man. He yeah. had vision. Uh, he had intelligence. He had courage. Um, he had devotion to God. He had faith. Um, and he was not, and he uh, respected the natives. It was his men, you know, who abused them. Yeah. When Columbus was away, he actually had, some of them hanged for abusing the natives. But what Howard Zinn is doing is um, promoting the communist propaganda because, you know, so Howard Zinn's not um, innovative in this. The communist line has been that uh, Columbus was a capitalist and because he was a greedy capitalist, he d decided to enslave the natives, rape the women, <laughs> you know, force them to, to look for gold. And when they didn't cut, chopped off their hands. Cool. Um, but what's behind all that is capitalism. Capitalism is the big evil to communists. Yeah, yeah. And so there are all these lies about Columbus that I kind of 
pick apart in my book and expose. And I show where Howard Zinn is leaving out critical words. He plagiarized. Um, he, he claims he did all this research and read all of Columbus's journals. But what he really did was he copied from a socialist buddy of his in the anti-Vietnam War movement, who was not a historian. He was a, um, a, a journalist and a novelist. So it's all made up stuff. Um, it's all distorted stuff. And it's, and you know, when you think about it, you know, here is the discoverer. So if you want to dock, knock down America, you start at its discovery. You start right at the beginning. And that's, you know, exactly what Howard Zinn did, uh, you know, as, as, you know, all communists did. Yeah. Well, Christopher Columbus, a Christian? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, he, he, he was, um, he was trying to, uh, you know, find a path to the great Khan and, uh, you know, eliminate, uh, you know, and to bring Christianity to the world. I mean, he, yeah. he wanted to convert um, the natives. He wanted to save their souls. I mean, you know, I, that's, right. I think that, that's a good thing to want to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And now in my country here in America, as you know already, they want to change Christopher Columbus Day to Indian Indian People Day. What a mess, huh? Yeah, I mean it's um, yeah, Indigenous Peoples Day, right? Uh, you know, if you if you read about um, you know the five hundred tribes that were here before um, the Europeans arrived, it was it, you know they weren't these. Peace-loving uh, hippies uh, that <laughs> <laughs> that Howard Zinn makes them out to be. They were territorial wars. Um, the women um, were uh, treated as like beasts of burden. They were the ones, you know, growing the corn, hoeing with a stick in the ground, while the men were lolling around or hunting. Um, there was constant warfare over territory. There was torture. There was enslavement. They yeah. enslaved the people they captured, you know, as, as everyone did around the world. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know why we, you know, um, would want, want to have that kind of a holiday. I'm not saying that. I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, Europeans did some, did some horrible things too, especially in wartime. But you know, uh, why? You know, uh, the reason the people who are behind Indigenous Peoples Day present a completely distorted picture of what yeah. you know. You know, when I read that, it reminded me of what I hear the blacks saying about Africa, and they're saying that oh, the white people went over to Africa. And they enslaved the blacks and brought them to this country and other countries and enslaved them. But that's not true. They act like the blacks was over in Africa and tipped through, into the, through the tulips. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, a white man came and just took them. But, <laughs> but what they're leaving out is that blacks were enslaved by other blacks. Tribes were fighting against tribes. Black people have been sold when they wanted to buy merchandise in Africa. They would use black people as money. Other black people were using black people. All those things are left out. And it reminds me of how the Indians were doing this over here, but all that is left out. 
and it's amazing to see that. I want to ask you about the uh, the Black Panther Party. They are looked at as a civil rights leader group, right? But they were not civil rights. No, they're they're a radical Marxist organization. They were violent. They, uh, you know, tortured people. You had Angela Davis in it, who was a bona fide member of the Communist Party. Yeah, uh, she's proud of it. Um, you know, she's invited to give Martin Luther King Day talks. Um, <laughs> She's a celebrity, makes a lot of money. The Black Panthers, um, they were terrorists. They were not civil rights leaders. And unfortunately, I'm seeing these lessons being pushed into schools by the Zen Education Project that presents the Black Panthers as civil rights leaders. But they they definitely were not. Amazing. Tell us about the uh, 1619 Project. What is that and why is it, why is that so important to the socialists now? And is that being taught in the schools? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's why you've got all these states that are writing and passing legislation against it. Um, you know, we were speaking about, um, you know, uh, enslavement in Africa. Uh, the 1619 project, uh, the reason that the, it's 1619 is that's when the first Africans were brought here uh, to Virginia. But um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of that project, knows that there was enslavement in Africa, but she leaves that out. Yeah. And, uh, and so she says basically that the Europeans went into Africa and kidnapped it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing to hear that knowing that it's not true at all it's not i mean the portuguese tried it they were just eliminated they yeah. could not do it you know um it was impossible uh so so that's the lie that is being uh spread um it's intended to make all white people look evil yeah and all, you know, uh, all black people in America as, um, you know, uh, being descended from slaves. Yeah. I mean, that's not true. Nope. Um, <laughs> there were some, um, you know, black slave owners themselves. And yes. I go into cases of that. So it's, it's if you read it, it's it, you can see it's this grossly distorted history, but it says black against white. Uh, in this false history, it's intended to stir up bad feelings among children because it's being taught K through 12. The lessons were pushed out as soon as that magazine was published in 2019 and um, teachers started teaching it. It had no vetting. Uh, There was no process to review it. It was just there. What is it like for you? And then I got to put you on the hot seat. When... (laughs) What is it like for you? <laughs> what, is, <laughs> what is it like for you seeing white people, white Americans, not just white folks in America, but around the world in the European countries? Um, what is it like for you seeing white people being accused for everything, every downfall, and then outwardly discriminating against the whites, passing laws against white, and it seemed that it can't be stopped. What is it like for you seeing that? 
Well, I'll tell you, it's scary. Um, I'm up here in New York State. They're they're rationing healthcare. I never thought I would see the day. So if you need treatment for COVID um, and, um, you know, one of the criteria is your race. Well, if you've got, you know, this 18-year-old Black uh, male athlete who's in the prime of his life and he gets preference over someone who, you know, maybe a white person who's older and hasn't, you know, a couple issues. I mean, that's really scary. It's, It's, you know, I never thought I would see the day where it would come down to medicine. I mean, yeah. academia is one thing and you can say, okay, well, you know, English departments, history departments, but it, it's frightening. And it makes you think about, you know, well, where can you go? What state can you go to where you won't um, get this discrimination? And, and it's coming from the Biden administration. So yeah. some of the states are following his directives and um, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really, it's really frightening. Yeah. And, um, and to think, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones, who is the creator of the 1619 Project, now she has a white mother. What? No. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you knew this. She's no, I did not. Yeah, yeah. But I, I really think she has this visceral hatred of white people. Yeah. Um, you know, she um, mocked this idea of rationing of health care on Twitter recently. She said, oh, this is this, you know, th- these people who complain about it are fascists. Oh, well, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> um, you know, you're not a fascist for um, insisting that, you know, you know, you be treated equally when you go to a hospital or a doctor's office. I mean, it's horrible. It's insane. Why, in, in short, in short, why don't white people protest and march and speak out and say no to all these things? Because as long as they are quiet about it, it's just going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Yeah, well, um, Shelby Steele um, has, you know, a good book yeah. called White Guilt, yes. right? And, um, and I think it's, um, you know, you're called a racist, immediately if you say anything if if you complain about affirmative action or if you complain about rationing of health care you're a racist because you're supposed to you know you have why do they care about the name call i can care less about name calling well a lot a lot of white people are intimidated and you know there's this i think there's a civil war among white people among white people white on white yes really what do you mean by that um, there, there's a, there are the white elites who are in academia or who are in high tech businesses, and they want to prove themselves to be superior to the middle class white people. Oh, and um, so uh, you know they. Um, y- you know, they side with these laws. Well, you think about it, okay? Yeah. So the average white person, um, you know, like myself, who's walking around, uh, I want to know, you know, that the police will be there. Yes, <laughs> you know? well, that's for sure. <laughs> right? Uh, I, don't have, I don't have money for private security. I don't live in a place where I have uh, a, a fancy security system. Yeah. I, I can't, like... 
spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on the doctor of my choice. Um, those, those kinds of discriminatory laws affect me, but the rich whites, it doesn't affect them. In fact, they benefit from it. Yes. They, they are the ones who will get uh, you know, recognition and adulation for it. And so there is this um, there is this conflict, but you know, um, it, it, it's. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you what it's like. If you, if you do complain about it, it, it's crazy. I mean, I remember in graduate school we had the Rodney King riots. I don't know if you remember. Oh, I remember. Yeah, what a um, mess. I remember. Yeah, yeah. and and. Um, and I remember a professor telling um, the class, he, he said, you know, a black person can never hurt a white person. <laughs> and, I, and, and you may recall that that uh, white truck driver got beat up. He almost Red, died. Reginald Denny, I believe his name was. Yes, yes. exactly. Of course, you know, white people can get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not gods. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We are so out of time, but I got to ask you, what do you suggest to parents that are still putting their children in these socialist governmental schools? What should they do with their children at this point? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I, I would say uh, uh, keep a very, very, very close eye. Um, become very active. Um, if you cannot do that, pull your kids out. Um and, you know, homeschool them, but even private schools are are doing this crazy critical race theory. Yeah. In, right. Yeah. Um, so but I think it's important for all citizens to care about the schools, because if you remember from the summer of 2020, all those crazy people, they were black and white out yeah. on the streets, looting, tearing down statues, attacking people. That's that's a result of the education yeah, that amazing. they have been given. So, I, you know. So homeschool is the best way to go at this point, huh? Um, yeah, yeah, if you can do it. But but I think we should all be concerned about what's being taught because yeah. those people are going to be on the street. They're going to be turning over your table when you're trying to have a meal at a restaurant. They're going to be blocking the road. They're going to be tearing down a statue of, you know, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Um, these people are out of control. They're violent and, and they're dangerous. And then they're going to put up a statue of an unemployed drug addict with a criminal record called George <laughs> Floyd. <laughs> oh, that, oh, don't get me started on that. Uh, <laughs> That'll be another conversation. <laughs> I got to put you on the hot seat. I got to heat this up. This interview up and put my guests on the hot seat. I need you to answer these questions as quickly as possible. All right. The hot seat. Who has more privilege, black people or gay people? <laughs> uh, people who are black and gay. <laughs> Should Roe versus Wade be overturned? Yes. What is love? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what is a man? Uh, well, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to name the parts here. I'll blush. No, except for the parts. <laughs> other than the parts, <laughs> <laughs> a man has uh, the chromosomes that make you a man. He has the male chromosomes. What is a woman? 
The same thing. She has the chromosomes that make her a woman. In one word, describe Joe Biden. Senile. <laughs> Does rape culture exist? I don't know. <laughs> Is white privilege real? No. Should China pay reparation for dam for damage from the China Chinese virus? Absolutely. Uh, true or false? Straight white Christian men are the most hated species on this side of heaven. True. True. Thank you so much for sitting in the hot seat there. That was fun, huh? It sure was. <laughs> I'm glad to be uh, have been invited. So, did you have fun? I did. Thank you so much. Tell the folks how to get your books, how can they get to your organization, everything you're doing, because they need to know about this. This is so important, and it's so clear. You make it so clear. Even I, being black and slow, I understand it. Tell the folks how to get it. Well, again, dissidentprof.com or marygraybar.com. And if you want to order my book, um, Debunking the 1619 Project, um, your children may be uh, being taught that in school. Ragnery, my publisher, has a special offer now, $10 off. So go to regnery.com, R-E-G-N-E-R-Y.com, and there's a code word, and you'll get $10 off. Spread the word. Um, try to. I hope people will get it into schools uh, and libraries so that kids at least have an alternative book um, to use if they are being forced to read the 1619 Project. Absolutely. Dr. Mary Graybar, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really, I knew it would be enlightening for me, and it was the discussion, so thank you for that. And thank you folks for tuning in. I absolutely appreciate it. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, check out Patreon on the link there, description link, and also check out our store. We have amazing merch in the uh, uh, Fallen State store there, so check that out. And thank you for your support, folks. Let me hear from you. Have a good one. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Next time on The Fallen State. A research specialist in ancient Egyptian history. The Nile Valley Movement was born out of a concern of maintaining and perpetuating, advancing and preserving a black image of Nile Valley civilization. Why are blacks doing better if they're so smart? Well, um... Uh-huh. Hold on one second. This is not an aha uh-huh moment. <laughs> um, I think it's not just any one thing. What's the primary thing? Um... Uh-huh. It's not one way. It's a mutual no. dislike and hatred. It, it, certainly is. No, it's not. It's really, really not. No one on either side is prepared to have a real conversation. White people want to have a real conversation. Hold on, hold on. Thanks for watching the Father State. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe. Support my nonprofit at rebuildingdemand.com and tell everybody and their mama about the show.
Mrs. Greenbar. That was so much fun, but yet so educational for me. I do appreciate it. Well, you're a great interviewer. I had a great time. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Be safe out there, all right? I will. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.